So, welcome to part eight of our study in the book of Hebrews. We are going at this blistering pace. So, we are going to begin tonight in Hebrews chapter three. And so, we've looked through the book of Hebrews. We've looked to understand who the book, the author of Hebrews thinks Jesus is. We have seen how that relates to Old Testament prophecy as well as to how Jesus relates to the angels. We understand how Jesus was, that he was really a man, why he came down to suffer, why he did the things he did. And so now we're going to look at a little different angle. And so if you'll turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews 3, we're going to read the first six verses. So therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And so as we begin tonight, the first title you're going to see is Moses was faithful. So the first blank, the first section title we're going to come across is this. So how was Moses faithful? Well, Moses was faithful in a lot of ways, and the author of Hebrews gives us a taste of this. But to begin with, Continuing on from chapter 2, we see the idea that the author continues that Jesus is a divine messenger and a high priest. And we got this in the, last week in the end of chapter 2. And so the author is going to take that and move on with it. The book of Hebrews is a little different than a lot of the other New Testament letters. When you read Paul, when you read Peter, when you read James, these are composed as letters. They have a very strict structure, they typically move from one point to the other as the author in question tends to go from one point to the next. Hebrews, as near as New Testament scholarship can tell, was actually a sermon. And I joked with Tony Wednesday night that, yes, there is someone who can preach longer than him. Because if this is indeed a sermon, it's going to take a minute to go through this. This is a very long passage when you look at it that way. But because it's a sermon, it tends to flow a little more smoothly than a lot of the other New Testament works, because it is just moving from one thought to the next very seamlessly. And so you'll see us, as we continue to go on, we're going to start referencing backwards and forwards a lot, just because that's how the author wrote this. In fact, if it is a sermon, it's the way the preacher spoke it when it was originally done. And so... One thing that's very unique in the book of Hebrews is how the author relates to Jesus. And in fact, he gives Jesus two very unique titles, apostle and high priest. Now, neither of these are particularly unique titles in the sense that they only apply to Jesus. In fact, they're very unique because this is really the only place we see them apply to Jesus. We see the term apostle thrown around a lot. But when we look at it specifically, the word apostle just means one who is sent. When someone is sent out, they are sent out as an apostle. 
And typically, an apostle means someone who is sent out to carry a message. So, for instance, when a Roman emperor had been crowned, when a new emperor had been come in, he apostelloed, he sent out messengers to proclaim that a new emperor was in town. Furthermore, when the emperor made a proclamation, it was apostles who went out and spread this good news that a new proclamation, that a new emperor has been crowned. So an apostle sent out the gospel, because that's what gospel means, is good news. From a biblical perspective, we see apostle used specifically of 12 men. The 11 disciples of Jesus, who were not Judas, and also Paul after his conversion, they were all considered apostles. They were witnesses of the risen Lord. They were people who had seen Jesus with their own eyes and had been given a special commission to go out into the world and preach the gospel to other people. But again, this is strange because we don't see this applied to Jesus very often. It's applied to people Jesus himself sent out. The apostles were people sent out by Jesus. It's very, this is the only place we see it apply to him. On the other side, the high priest, the high priest in Jewish culture was the one who offered the atoning sacrifice to God. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest was the one who took the sacrificial lamb, took the blood, took it not only to the altar, but was allowed for this one day a year to enter into the Holy of Holies, and assuming this is the time of period where it was still around, he would actually splash the blood on the ark. This would appease God's wrath for the people for the year. Only the high priest was allowed to do this, and there was only ever one high priest. And so, what is the author trying to tell us with this? This is a very unique thing to say. Furthermore, high priests really shouldn't apply to Jesus anyway. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. For Jesus to be the king of Israel, he had to come from the tribe of Judah. However, when you look back in Leviticus, and actually back to Exodus when the priesthood was originally founded, it was founded on the tribe of Levi. In fact, Moses himself was a Levite. And so, by the standards of the cult, Jesus should not have been the high priest. This should not have applied to him. But we do see a little bit of... I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to chase a rabbit here if I had to get into this. So, these titles give us a perfect example of how Jesus relates, is able to bridge a gap between God and us. And I think that's what the author's getting at here. The author is trying to tell us something very special about Jesus that's unique to him. Specifically, as an apostle, he is the intermediary between God and man. When Jesus was sent, when Jesus came down to earth, he was sent by God to us as people. And as we just read last week, he did so as a man. And so he's able to bridge the gap between God and us because God sent him very specifically to do that. On the flip side, as high priest, he is able to act as an intermediary between man and God. So when he died on the cross, more specifically when he resurrected three days later, the final sacrifice was given. We are now able to go to God, but we do so with Jesus and the Holy Spirit as an intermediary. 
In that way, he functions as the high priest. But when we take a moment and step back, we find that it's not just Jesus that we can use these terms for. We can also apply these to Moses. Moses would be considered an apostle because he was sent by God to Pharaoh for the purpose of freeing the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. And so when we look at Exodus 3, 9 and 10, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Yeah. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God sent Moses to Pharaoh. And if you read this in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, God apostled Moses to Pharaoh. On the other side, on the high priest, Moses would speak to God on behalf of Israel. And we see this quite often. And I'll give you a second to write this before we get to the next passage. Moses would speak to God on behalf of Israel. Whenever Israel did something stupid, and that was a lot when Israel would do something stupid, God would sometimes get fed up with them, and Moses would more or less have to talk him down. An example of this is in Exodus 32, beginning in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Whom have you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. In all this land that I have promised you, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from this disaster he had spoken of bringing to his people. So what in this case had the Israelites done that got God so hot? <laughs> it's funny. They had just finished camping at Sinai. Moses had gone up the mountain And in this moment, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. If you know the story, you know what happened. Moses comes down, and Aaron, just his brother, trying to keep the Israelites from revolting, allowed them to build an idol, a golden calf. And God... (laughs) God was just tired of it. They had literally just walked out of Egypt having seven miraculous plagues go across the land. They get to the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. And the second Moses walks away to get the law, they build an idol. God's like, it! <laughs> I just cleaned this place up. But Moses interceded. Moses interceded and acted as a high priest in that moment, and he quelled the wrath of God long enough to kind of tell the people what they were doing was wrong. 
So when we compare Jesus with Moses, the author only has uplifting things to say. And this is interesting, because when we looked at Jesus versus the angels earlier, the angels are brought lower. He not only describes Jesus as being better than the angels, he describes the angels as being less than a lot of people thought they were. We don't see this with Moses. With Moses, it's only positive things. And so, why? Well, your next blank will be in all God's house. So this next section is in all God's house. Moses was faithful in all God's house. So who is Moses? Why is he worthy of such praise? Why is he given this such positive comparison against the Son of God? Well, there's a lot of reasons. First off, Moses was the Savior of Israel. This, I don't feel like I'm exaggerating much when I say this. When you look at it, well, as I put the Scripture reference, the Scripture reference is the book of Exodus. But let's look at Moses' track record. Went to Pharaoh, brought seven plagues upon Egypt, got Pharaoh to relent and give up the Israelites from their slavery, brought them across the Red Sea, took them into the wilderness, eventually led them to the doorstep of the promised land, turned around and went back because they were stupid, led them throughout the wilderness for 40 years, brought them again to the doorstep of the promised land. Moses was the one who got all of this done. Now, yes, God is the one who actually initiated the changes. I'm not saying Moses did this on his own power. But the earthly representative of God in that case was Moses. Furthermore, Moses was the first prophet of God. If we define prophet as someone who speaks on behalf of a deity, someone who relays the divine message to people, Moses really was the first one to get any real work done. And we see this specifically in Exodus 3 through 13. Because Moses first goes to Pharaoh and proclaims the word of God to him. He goes to the Israelites and proclaims the word of God to them. He does a lot of things. I mean, he tells the Israelites the name of God. The name Yahweh was given to Moses to give to the Israelites so they would follow him out of Egypt. He was the first prophet. Moses also was the one who gave the law. The law was the central thing of Jewish worship. When you look at ancient Judaism, in particular first century Judaism, the law was everything. Keeping the law was the entire reason Jew Jewish people, Israelites, lived. Because of the promise to keep the land. The covenant, as it were, was this. You obey my laws, and I will let you keep your land. So the Israelites were always going to do whatever it took to keep the law. That was no matter what you were, no matter if you were a Pharisee, a Sadducee, an Essene, or a Zealot, keeping the law and therefore keeping their nation was the key thing for them. And all of that originated with Moses and the Ten Commandments 
and then further the expanded law through the book of Leviticus and Numbers. Moses also built the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the original host of sacrifice, the altar, the ark, all of the little vestments, the lanterns, every little thing that was part of the Jewish sacrificial system was established through Moses. The tabernacle would eventually become the temple. So everything that was with that was about how the Israelites came to atonement with God was originally established through Moses, including the priesthood. The priesthood was established. In this case, by Moses' own brother Aaron. Because remember, Moses was a Levite. And so the high priest, the first high priest, was Moses' own brother. Another unique thing about Moses Moses was allowed to speak face to face with God. In fact, in Numbers 12 8, God flat out says, he speaks to me face to face. So why does, he say, why does God say this about Moses? Because Moses' brother Aaron and his wife Miriam were getting a little disillusioned with Moses' leadership. And so Aaron sought to supplant Moses as the leader of the people. And God caught wind of this because he's God and came down and pretty much called the three of them to the tent. And in doing so, he chewed Aaron and Miriam out very harshly and flat out told them, one reason Moses leads is because he speaks to me face to face. When Moses would speak with God, his face would shine. His face would radiate. Sometimes the people would tell him to wear some sort of veil because he was kind of disturbing to look at. And if you can imagine someone walking around with a face that's actually glowing, that would be kind of weird, wouldn't it? You can kind of see where they're coming from. Like, hey, cover that thing up. That's kind of distracting. But he was in such the presence of God that that's what happened to him. And finally, Moses obeyed God most of the time. But again, Moses had some very serious mess-ups. One in particular that a lot of people come to mind is the second time the Israelites are asking for water. God says, speak to the rock, and water will come out of it. Well, the first time God told him to do this, he said, strike the rock. Struck the rock, water came out of it. And so Moses, either forgetting the new instruction or getting angry, whatever the case is, instead of speaking to it the second time, he hit it. And God got onto him for it. Water still came out because the people needed water. But he still got in trouble. Yet again, I want to point out, the author of Hebrews does not point this incident out or any others. The easiest way to make a comparison that someone is better than someone else is to show where the other person messed up. But he doesn't do that. The author only has good things to say. And I think part of that is because in Numbers 12, 7, Moses considered, or God considered Moses the most faithful person in Israel. That of all the things he messed up with, he got it right so many times that he was considered the most faithful and trustworthy person. 
And the text is, not so my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Again, this is the same conversation with Aaron and Miriam. So, Moses is given higher honor than any other person. No other person in human history could be given the same honor as Moses. But Jesus is not just a person. And for that reason, he is granted even greater glory. Moses is the greatest person that exists inside the house of God. I'll say that again. Moses is the greatest person to ever exist inside the house of God. He is the prototypical Jesus. He is the thing that the Israelites were, should have expected from their Messiah, something like Moses. In fact, it's very easy to see that Jesus was, in fact, enacting a second exodus when he came. Except instead of leaving the land of Egypt, he was taking his people out of sin, bringing them into the kingdom of God. But whereas Moses was the greatest person of the house, Jesus, who the book of Hebrews has been establishing very strongly, is God, is the builder of that house, and more importantly, the founder of that house. Moses is the greatest citizen within it. Jesus is the one who built it in the first place. So your final uh, little subheading will be as a servant. So Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. So if the author of Hebrews has nothing but good things to say about Moses, what's the point of the comparison? And I believe this is it right here. Moses can never be given the same glory as Jesus because he is only a servant within God's house. He can be the greatest servant. He can be the single most per- single person that upheld more of the law than anybody else. He is still only a servant within this household. So what Moses does is he points us toward the perfection that is Christ. Moses was this perfect example to kind of give us a glimpse of what Jesus would be. An imperfect glimpse, but still the closest thing we could imagine as people what the Messiah would look like, I think, is what Moses was. But he was still a man. He still failed. He still sinned. He was still unable to uphold the law that he himself helped write down. What he was was a steward, charged with keeping the house while the master was away. And this idea of stewardship is very interesting. Stewards were given great authority, but they were still servants. A steward could sit beside the throne and issue orders, but a steward could never sit upon the throne and issue orders.
Continuing on, the author makes it clear that Moses performed this duty better than any other. Because again, Numbers 12, 7, and 8, my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. He speaks to me face to face. Moses was the best steward of mankind. But, like any good steward, he must make way for the return of the king. Moses could only stand as the head of Israel until the actual king came. And when Jesus came, the king came. So, I, I saw Rod smiling at this one. <laughs> I debated bringing up this video clip, but I'll just describe it. So in the book, in the movie, The Return of the King, we see a perfect example of how this is done incorrectly. So Gandalf and Pippin have gone to the city of Gondor. Gondor is the throne room of all mankind. The king of men sits on the throne of Gondor. When they get there, they see this guy sitting on this tiny chair besides this massive throne. This guy is Denethor. Denethor is the steward of Gondor. Him and his fathers before him have had the task of maintaining the city while the king was away. They go through a bit of back and forth, and finally, Denethor challenges Gandalf in this way. And he says, I know who rides with you. No, I will not bow my knee to this man, this ranger of the north, this Aragorn. I will not bend my knee to him. To which Gandalf says, who is a steward to prevent the return of the king? Because Aragorn was the rightful king of Gondor. When he came, it was his right, more so it was his duty to take the crown and ascend to his throne. But some people don't want to do that. In one way, I think Moses was incredibly faithful, was Moses allowed himself to step aside and allowed Jesus to take the throne. And we see this on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who are the two figures that appeared to Jesus in the presence of James, John, and Peter? Elijah, the greatest prophet, and Moses, the greatest steward. We see him give deference to Jesus as God. That is why I know he was the great steward. So if Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant, Jesus is faithful over all of God's house as the Son. Moses was the greatest steward, steward, the greatest servant within the house of God. Jesus, as the Son of God, is inherently over the house. He is not within the house. He is not a member of it. He is the king over it. So God built one house, the people who serve under the covenant. Before Jesus came, that covenant was the law of Israel. Anyone who joined the Israelite people 
was circumcised, as Rod talked about this morning, participated in the sacrifice, and acknowledged God as God, was, un- was able to be under the covenant and thus part of God's house. Today, we're under a new covenant, and that covenant is the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who accepts that atonement is now under the new covenant. But it's the same house. We still acknowledge the same God as God. We still go through the same things and are considered the same people. We just got in a different way than those that came before us. And in that regard, Moses faithfully kept the house while the son was away. And not just Moses, but Moses' legacy. Because whenever you hear the law, it's almost always given in with, with the word Moses near it. It's the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. Moses is such an integral part of the original law of Israel that, of course, he's considered the steward of it. The law is his legacy. And so what's our takeaway this evening? First, the passage does not take away the honor and glory given to Moses. It is simply trying to show why Jesus is worth so much more. Moses is not taken Moses's position is not taken away from him. He is still the one who did all these things on God's behalf. The author simply wants to say Jesus is worthy of so much more than that because of who he is. Those of us who follow Jesus are considered holy brothers and sisters because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. We are not just servants. We are now brothers and sisters under this covenant, within this house, because of what Jesus did. Therefore, we are partners in a heavenly calling. And that calling requires an answer from us. When the gospel came to you, it, res- it demanded a response. Now, you can choose to accept it, or you can choose to deny it, but you had to do something. The one thing you could not do when God came to you was just ignore it. The calling of God always requires an answer. The only choice is whether you're going to do it or not. And so when that time comes, we give glory to God by remaining faithful, as both Jesus and Moses were, to that heavenly calling. And so, as Rod said this morning, we have to be lion-hearted. We have to go out and boldly go into the world, doing what God has called us to do. That said... Faithfulness that bold can be difficult. Even Moses and Elijah struggled through that. We see time and time again where one of them failed. Or Elijah was depressed to the point of wanting death because he felt like the burden was too great. But does that mean we give up? No. 
because we have examples like this, we're able to say, we can do it. God has allowed people to do it in the past. We can stand firm on those shoulders. More importantly, Jesus was able to completely obey the law as a man. He stayed faithful to God completely as a human being. Not to say that we can too, but to say that it is possible and to give us something to strive for, to give us something to work toward, a goal we can never reach, but we can always just inch a little closer to every time we try. No matter what we do, we know it's been done, and therefore we can at least put forth the effort. We must remember those who came before us and always recall their faithful walk. The 11th chapter of Hebrews is nothing but stories like that, telling us how people were faithful, how God used them in mighty and powerful ways. So what's an easy way, well, a simple way to be faithful? Simply boldly proclaim to the world that we belong to God. Last week, Tony talked about how God was willing to say, we belong to him. God was willing to go to bat for us and not just say, let us say, hey, I'm with him. God says, no, no, they're with me. But we can do the flip just as easily. Let us go out into the world and say, I belong to God. Let's be fighting with God over who gets to say that first. Going out boldly. Furthermore, we can do that because we are not just servants. Moses was a servant. We are sons and daughters by the faithfulness of Jesus. Therefore, we are actually in a better position than someone like Moses. Because we have been adopted wholly into God's house. We are not just servants. We are not just people picking up the mess, making dinner, cleaning the toilets. We get to sit up there as sons and daughters of God because we have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit within us. And so when we look back at guys like Moses, like Jonathan, like David, like Elijah, like Solomon, like Daniel, understand they did all of these amazing things for God without the Holy Spirit. Therefore, We are far more empowered, and therefore we should be far bolder when we go out because we have that extra umph, that little plus that they didn't have. This is not something unique to individual people, but it's something given to everyone who believes in Jesus. We have an eternal hope. And in passages like this, the author of Hebrews wants us to know that we need to be bold in every proclamation of that hope. We have something nobody else can give. We have not just forgiveness of sin, not just a ticket to heaven, 
we have a one-on-one, face-to-face relationship with the God and creator of this universe. So let's go out and boldly act like that is the case. Let's pray.